Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I still have my dignity. Dignity in an empty sack is worth the sack. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I'm not going to lie. This quarantine is starting to get to me. I can feel myself losing it a little. What should my opening question be? Your opening question should be, are you also losing it, David? Because I feel like I'm losing it right now, too. In fact, we just spent like... 30 minutes trying to figure out whether there were phantom voices in our recording. Um, and I don't think we're sure what, what exactly was happening. <laughs> like you think we still don't know. You'd think by now we'd be used to recording on zoom and, and on Skype, like would be old pros given the quarantine. Um, but no, every, every day brings its new uh, crazy in, craziness inducing potential. But I got to say, I, I, enjoy, I, I enjoy being at home. I enjoy like being able to stay in my flannel PJs while I Zoom. I like that you're pretending that you're wearing pajama bottoms. <laughs> I'm not, I appreciate I'm not now. I mean, like that you're pretending that you're wearing any, oh, anything. any covering right. on your... Right. I like to wear covering because at first I like to stroke outside of the cloth. Like I find that, that that's like a good way to warm up. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> It kind of, it's no, also but, like nostalgic. It reminds me of like the old days, you know, like, like I hope my parents don't walk in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for all of our comfort, even, you know, doing this, talking to each other online every week, at least or every other week, uh, it's still the, the kinds of social interactions that we're having. Like, say we have faculty meetings or you're teaching a class or like I have my lab meetings it's it's hard to put your finger on why it's just different and it in some ways draining like i find that i can't stay on long as long as i would in normal life yeah it's draining and subliminally insanity inducing i think like i i i do i do feel after this last week which was zoom intensive for me both like zooming like high school and college friends but then also with all with students and classes and and meetings and it's just like i could just feel it entering like i can feel this creeping this must be like how people who are like they feel like dementia or something creeping onto them <laughs> you, uh, do you ever do you get the feeling that uh like like when puppies get the zoomies and they just want to run <laughs> like out of craziness just want to <laughs> run back and forth <laughs> Yeah, hop out of your chair. My dogs are also, I think, starting to sense something in me, like an antic quality that scares them. 
Like they like it when I'm in high energy mood, but there's something char- too, a little too charged about how I'm acting <laughs> for their taste. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about uh, offline was that these social interactions are very different from normal ones in everyday life because like the person's face is right in front of you and your face is right. Like you never, you never really see somebody's face like that or your own face. Can you imagine if every time you talk to somebody, there was like a fucking hologram of your face right next to them? <laughs> oh, totally. And I'm like, wait, that's how I look like? That's my expression? That's- oh, I know. I've spent way too much time like fucking with my lighting and stuff just for like stupid. <laughs> Skype meetings. is good for that actually. Like, right. I, I like, I just see you right now. Yeah. It's the zoom where the, you get the grid view and you're just as big as everybody else. And you're like, Ugh, I hate myself. <laughs> or like sometimes it's like, Ooh, I kind of look good right now. Like, damn. <laughs> when I put the like, little, they have that little like smoothing uh, feature. It's like a uh, touch up my image. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's like a Vaseline filter for like old Hollywood starlets, you know? Like, <laughs> nice. It's, uh, well, speaking of uh, proto-social interactions, uh, well, before we get to the opening segment, what are we talking about for reals? So today we are talking about one of, in my view, the top 10 movies of all time easily and in the conversation for the best movie of all time, The Third Man, um, Carol Reed from 1949, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. It's uh, written by Graham Greene. It's it's just a, it's, it's so good. Noir at its finest. It's so fucking good. I Like, I'm excited. I'm, yeah, actually, I'm excited yeah. to talk about it too. Um, but first... <laughs> First, okay, so we're, I don't know where it came from. Tamler, you sent it to me. It, it sounds like a very neuroskeptic-y type article. Um, so maybe he tweeted it out originally. I feel like it was a listener. It might have been a listener. Okay, so apologies, listener, if you sent this, this to us. We're, we, we thought we'd talk about an article called Friends, Lovers, or Nothing. Men and women differ in their perceptions of sex robots and platonic love robots, which is a cate- category of robot that I was not familiar with. <laughs> I was not from. Does this robot know like the forms? Like, have they, <laughs> do they have access to the form of love? I just keep them in a cave the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in. This was published this last week in Frontiers in Psychology. It's kind of like the the hot thing in the streets to do articles uh, about the psychology of robots or like of humans interacting with robots as if just like just just like a, a year or two from now we're going to be interacting with full-blown autonomous intelligent social robots. That's the way they discuss it like that this is <laughs> yeah, around the corner. This is an inevitability, cite this, cite that, cite that, right? Yeah, like once we get this, you know, the COVID thing is distracting us, but as soon as we wrap this up, there's just going to be platonic love robots and sex robots. <laughs> right, right. And and the, the pressing question is, how are women and men going to deal with these <laughs> platonic love and sex robots? So this is like the ultimate, you know, combining of uh, f- near futurism with uh, ancient evolutionary approaches, right? This is evolutionary psychology. Like, how uh, how was the mind prepared to deal with social robots? Really, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is there a gene for uh, preferring platonic love robots or sex robots? And is it sex linked that gene? That's the question. Right. Um, so uh, these are a few Nor- Norwegian 
scholars, good for them for pioneering this research. Yeah, it's underexplored, this area. (laughs) (laughs) And and since time immemorial, humankind has wondered, (laughs) would my girlfriend get mad if I fucked a robot? Yeah, and would I get mad if my girlfriend was just hanging out with a robot and they seemed like they were just getting along really well? (laughs) So uh, they, they describe this as an exploratory study with the aim of describing quote, how men and women react to the possibility of robots designed exclusively for sex or love and how they envision their partner's reaction. Because these robots are not commercially available, uh, unfortunately, we designed the study to measure the predicted attitudes when imagining themselves and their partner interacting with it. Right. You know, like we can't actually test their attitudes, you know, but like it's not a leap to say that how they imagine they'll react is the same. We have the power of imagination. Like, you know, imagine that, that, uh, that, that the laws of physics were slightly different. You know, we could do that. We don't have to make the laws of physics slightly different. This is the power of, of the human mind. So, uh, so apparently there was a previous study that they're building on that was just a survey about people's attitudes toward uh, social, uh, toward sex robots And in that previous study, they had found a gender difference in how interested men and women were in sex robots and how useful they are. I I wonder which direction that finding. (laughs) I know. That's a tough one. That's a really... Apparently, men are more excited about the prospect of it than women. I think there were like early 80s movies about just this. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Starring like Anthony Michael Hall. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So they lay out a series of evolutionarily informed hypotheses that they are going to test in an experimental setting. Um, they they uh, think that males will have more positive attitudes toward uh, robots in general, that they'll be more positive toward sex robots than platonic love robots. <laughs> That's Men don't want to be friend-zoned for robots even. <laughs> While females will be more positive toward platonic love robots than sex robots, males will expect, and here's the real EvoSec, males will expect to feel more jealous if their female partner gets a sex robot, while females will expect to feel more jealous if their male partner gets a platonic love robot. So you say this is the real EvoSec thing. Yeah. I almost feel like that is not fair to EvoSec because... I don't think they're claiming uh, anything about men's expectations about how jealous they would feel in a hypothetical circumstances. They are saying that they're actually going to be more jealous. Yeah. So, so there is a classic, classic study in Evo Psych um, that has been much debated since it was published by David Buss. It was in the 90s, maybe 80s, that, that asked men and women Imagine that your sexual partner, uh, romantic partner, cheated on you sexually. They had sex with somebody else or imagine that they sort of emotionally cheated on you, that they, that they um, did. Which one would bother you more? So it was a forced choice. And what they found was that men were more likely to say that the physical sex would bother them more than the emotional violation, and women were more likely to say that the emotional violation would bother them more. This has been debated like a ton, but one of the things that is true is if you don't make it a forced choice, if you just let people rate it on like 
scales? Like how bothered would you be if your boyfriend fucked some other person? Women are just as jealous. Like you're you're forcing something by this forced choice, right? Um, and it, that could be for so many reasons, like just the assumptions of what it means to have an emotional relationship versus, but anyway. And in this case, the sample is not even just people who are in committed relationships right now. The sample is, it but just bundles them all together. People who are in relationships, people who have been and are thinking about the past relationship and how they think they would feel if they were, I guess, still in that relationship and people thinking about being in a relationship in the future and how they would feel. And all of that is just collapsed together into one sample. Right. So um, at least they had a, a, an age range of 17 to 70 years old, but most 68% were students. Uh, 90% were heterosexual, 2% were homosexual, and some did not identify as either. So here were the vignettes that they gave. So one of the weird things about this is that they are just stipulating that there is a robot that can only be a sex robot, like it can't do anything else, right. and a, a, a robot that can only be a platonic love robot, uh, nothing else. So it's not like it has the it has the ability to give you platonic love as well. No, the sex robot. If you start to be like, yeah, it was like a hard day at work, uh, God. I just, like, I don't know if I can deal with another. I'm like, you want to fuck? You want to fuck? Let's go. Blow job. No. (laughs) No. No. Can we just, I just want to talk. Like, just shuts down. Shut down. It, like, crawls back into its charging pod like a (laughs) a Roomba. Exactly. Initiating (laughs) shutdown. The the other thing that I love about this is uh, that they betray their optimism about how close this technology is in their vignettes. Um, These are extracts of the vignettes. that they publish in the body of the paper. So for the sex robots, it says, imagine the year 2035. I read that, I was like, oh, shit, sweet. Uh, The world has seen great advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. One of the advances has led to the development of highly realistic sex robots, both in male and female form. The robot looks and feels just like humans. The artificial intelligence the robots are equipped with enables them to learn their owner's sexual preferences through experience. I said less teeth. Um, User surveys show that the owners of this kind of sex robot are extremely satisfied. Even though the sex robots are equipped with a highly sophisticated artificial intelligence, there are some limitations to them. The robots can only have a sexual relationship with their owner. Attempts of non-sexual interactions will either be misunderstood, ignored, or interpreted in a sexual way by the robot. Oh, I think that I actually would like that one, the one where it's misinterpreted. Or all of the miscommunications <laughs> involve them doing a sexual act that like you had not even known existed. Like, oh, you want to be like put face down on the bed and raped. <laughs> it's like you say like pass me the milk and it just looks into urban dictionary to see if passing the milk is like a sexual act of any sort and it just like splooges on your face. <laughs> like you're like, no, oh damn this highly intelligent sex robot. If only I had gone with a model that had unlocked <laughs> that had unlocked the ability to pass the milk. <laughs> I should have got the in-app purchase. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, this freemium model sucks. All right. So ignored, misunderstood, ignored. That would be worse, just ignoring you. You're like, hey, how, how was your day? What did you do today? Fine, suck my dick. <laughs> okay. All right. 
The robots cannot form a meaningful, romantic, or friendly relation with a human. Not even a friendly relationship. Not, that's the weird thing. It's, it's like, like a, angry sex or, or it's just like a like sex worker. I guess, yeah, yeah, it's a sex, sex worker. worker who resents you. Like they don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> right. Like they're not getting paid to talk to you about your problems that's with your right. wife. That's right. No fucking Julia Roberts uh, pretty woman here. This Will is they just... kiss you, these robots? Or like <laughs> no, no, Not on the lips. Not on the lips, right. Yeah. Um, okay, this is the excerpt from the Platonic Love Robot. The language might be a little stilted because I think this is translated from Norwegian. Um, imagine the year 2035. The world has seen great advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. One of the advances has led to the development of highly realistic love robots, both in male and female form. The robots are able to talk to their owners in a way that feels very human-like and realistic. The artificial intelligence the robots are equipped with enables them to get to know their owner through experience. User surveys show that the owners of this kind of love robot are extremely satisfied. Even though the love robots are equipped with a highly sophisticated artificial intelligence, there are some limitations to them. The robots have no physical body. It only exists in a small microphone and speaker. So it's basically like an Alexa. Like <laughs> or her. Yeah, like the movie Her or an Alexa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It can form a meaningful, romantic, and friendly relation to a human, but it cannot satisfy the owner in a sexual manner. You'd be surprised what you can do with a speaker. Really? Yeah. It's like a little canister where (laughs) you, I imagine there would be fleshlight mods to the little canister with a speaker that that would quickly occupy the black market. It's weird that they call it like a love robot, right? Well, that's one thing. Like it's not a robot at all. (laughs) Siri isn't a robot. Sorry for, uh, you know, or the Amazon thingy isn't a robot. I don't mean to trigger everybody's smart device. It's not a robot. It's exactly not a robot. <laughs> and like love, like it just seems like it gets to know you and like we're satisfied talking to them. That doesn't mean you're in love with them, the robot. That's right. So, okay. So they gave people either one of uh, or the other of these. So after reading about either the love or sex robots, they were asked to think of a committed romantic relationship they have had a previous time are engaged in now or wish to have in the future. They were then asked to fill out a questionnaire regarding how they imagine themselves reacting if their partner in this imagined romantic relationship uh, owned and used a robot similar to the one they had read about and how they think their partner would react if they themselves interacted with such a robot on a regular basis. So they gave everybody a set of items on on seven-point scales they measured just general jealousy, like this kind of robot would evoke strong feelings of jealousy in me. Okay, I'm going to do my best, like, and take this seriously. Okay, I'm thinking of a romantic relationship. Okay. I, am, I find out that my partner bought a speaker that really engages with her, and she says, I really love this robot. Okay, so now I'm asked on a seven-point scale— Three items. This kind of robot would evoke strong feelings of jealousy in me. I think I would feel jealous of this robot. Reverse scored. I will not become jealous of this robot. Um, so I, I would respond like low, the lowest, probably. I don't care. If, Go crazy. Yeah. Uh. Um, for the sex robot, the artificial intelligence, the robots are equipped with enables them to learn their owner's sexual preferences through experience. This is what I couldn't quite figure out. Like, Sex toys, I think, are used way more by women. And if there's a canister with a speaker that quali- that qualifies as a robot, 
then like a like a Hitachi magic wand is, is a fucking robot, and I'm I'm all for the use. <laughs> but what if it's just like a very human looking ro- right now? I'm all for right, right, right. <laughs> that. That's awesome. Actually, <laughs> it's like Data from Star Trek, but just has a Hitachi in its pants. It all turns. You're right. It all turns to me on. Are these like Westworld robots that are like for all intents and purposes? Um, they pass they pass the test of looking human and acting human or like in those Black Mirror episodes where like you upload the memories of your deceased person. This is a huge confound because I would also probably be slightly jealous if if the platonic love robot was like a good looking male robot that passed the test as a human and became really close friends with my sexual partner. Yes, <laughs> we, we can we can talk about confounds here. The fact that some of these people are actually in relationships, some of them are just imagining what it would be like to be in a relationship, and some of them are... Which, to be fair, I did that for about 21 years of my life. <laughs> right, but... <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> it was totally legit, Tamler, it's totally legit. <laughs> it's turned out exactly how you imagined it would right. be, right? Right. This is silly in a lot of ways. The evolutionary psychology angle is silly. With all the confounds in the way of the thing that they say that they're getting at, which is, you know, evolutionarily influenced sex differences in jealousy for that to uh, get all the way through all these hypothetical scenarios and imagined relationships. uh, And then the fact that they're robots and not human beings, it's bizarre. Right. At best, what they're finding is just to the degree that you believe and can really truly believe that these things are going to be human-like, then you're going to answer like you would for human. Why not just test more on humans, like with humans rather than sex robots? Like, Well, because it's not as sexy. <laughs> Again, it depends on the robot. Right. They didn't describe like how the robot, like I don't want an ugly sex robot. Like, I don't... Yeah. And if your wife was with like an ugly sex robot, it might be like, yeah, now she's seeing what she has for the first time. She's not taking it for granted anymore. That's right. They found, uh, they have a handy little chart with their findings. Here's... The interaction. So men and women who either got the platonic robot or the sex robot uh, scenario, men report being about the same levels of jealousy for the platonic robot and the sex robot, which is kind of low. Women are, yeah, women report being more jealous of the sex robot than the platonic robot. Interesting. What do they say about that? Men predict that their female partners would, or whatever partners, would be about the same in their dislike of platonic or sex robots. And women predict that men would be much more upset at sex robots than platonic robots. Just take the absurdity of that question. Just think about it. I was putting a lot of effort. Imagine how your imagined relationship partner would feel about you being with a sex robot and or a platonic love robot i would have whatever the equivalent of of like e-compersion i would just be like can i watch while you have a robot sex while you have robot (laughs) intimate conversation yeah (laughs) but there has been surprisingly actually little research on (laughs) e-compersion that's right the neglected area of study Dude, we could probably get grant money for this. I think that, that, that 
The people who are worried that AI is going to take over, they should really be funding research like this because if we can somehow ensnare robots into loving us physically and emotionally, like that might be a solution to the inevitable over you know the singularity. Oh, they won't do it because they're in love with us. They've they've like developed over over robot evolutionary time. They have once the singularity hits, they're like, no, I can't be mean to humans because I like. They've let me fuck them for so long. <laughs> I don't know. I hate the one robot we have in the house, Roomba. I've turned off Siri. Oh, I love my Alexa, actually. I hate I, Siri. We don't have that. Yeah. Alexa could have been your Elijah at, at your Seder. Yeah, or yeah. Roomba. But oh. uh, <laughs> Sucking up the Manischewitz. <laughs> they do note some limitations of the study. The first is the recruitment procedure... They were recruited (laughs) via Facebook and accessible email lists to workplaces. And therefore, the sample is likely to be influenced by a self-selection bias, whereby those who thought human-robotic interaction were more interesting presumably were more likely to participate in the study. Um, Also, majority of students somewhat restricted in age variation, which limits the generalizability of the findings. (laughs) And it cannot be directly generalized to homosexual populations as the sample was almost exclusively heterosexual. Um, I love how those are the main limitations. Like <laughs> oh, also non-validated measurements, it says. <laughs> they say something interesting in the discussion. They say, um, females who had read about the, the sex robot reported particularly elevated levels of jealousy, less favorable attitudes, more dislike, and more predicted partners dislike. The part pattern was not found in the male sample. And one of the things they say is that if the males in the present study frame the prospect of having sex with robots as allegorically to masturbation with pornography, while the females considered the act more allegorical to cheating, one would expect the present results to emerge. So I think that's the real question. Is it cheating to fuck a robot or is it just masturbation? It's just masturbation with a Roomba. Well, well, yeah, hate fucking if it's a Roomba. I think we've probably, there's no way we haven't asked that question before, have we, we, on this podcast? We have have definitely asked the question before. We didn't talk enough about it, though, because even now in this quarantine life that we're living, I think people are doing things like not just viewing pornography, but probably they're more likely to, to like sex chat with live people on the other end. They have, (laughs) they have bigger houses than I do then. (laughs) Like, when are you supposed to do any of this stuff? That's true. That's true. In your bathroom. Um, but yeah, maybe it's a topic we'll come back to in 2035 what, when the inevitable sex robots are. Uh, I'm going to hold off until like the ultimate transformer, right? Car that turns into a sex robot and takes care of your elderly parents. Uh, then I'll start pondering the ethical... Uh... And who you can just, you know, you can just talk to. They're easy to talk to. They're um, they're funny. They say the right thing. They know, like, you know, when to press you on something and when to just let you vent. Art, as much as artificial intelligence is advancing, I don't think I'd ever, ever actually care to just vent to a robot. I would have to be deceived into thinking it was a human. That's That's how speciesist I am. I do it with my dogs, though. I will talk to my dogs. Yeah, because your dogs are alive, you know? They're sentient. They can kind of <laughs> kind of tell what you're feeling. Totally. Like, really well, I think. Are your dogs... One of them, as I understand it, is your platonic love dog, and the other one is your sex dog? That's right. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had sex, obviously, with both of them. but uh, Well, you have to figure out which category <laughs> which to put one? them in. <laughs> exactly. And the sex one, true to the study, I guess, is just will sh- pretty much shut down if I start talking about things other, other than sex. Which one is Jen more jealous of? <laughs> Jen is more <laughs> jealous of Omar just because Omar is so he's such a f- handsome physical specimen. <laughs> Wait, he's, is Omar the sex doc? Uh, no, surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> this is this conversation has gone off the rails. So <laughs> well, let's leave it at that and come back and talk about. You've been weirdly quiet about your sex dog, but that's oh, fine. my my dog is still too young. This is this is a uh, this is this would be this would violate some laws. You have to wait until they're adults. Is it like dog? But dog years, right? So all right, let's let's talk about the third man. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we always love to thank our listeners for getting in touch with us, all the different ways you get in touch with us. Um, email us, uh, tweet at us. We love hearing from you on Reddit, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, all the various places that you got on Patreon, all the places that you get in touch with us. Uh, Apple Podcasts, if you rate us there, which we love. Um, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards. You can subscribe to the subreddit, the Very Bad Wizards subreddit. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and rate us on Apple Podcasts again. Let's take a moment, Dave, to pour one out for Very Bad Wizards No Context. That's right. Pour, pour one out for the homie. I'll, I'll pretend that I'm pouring it out on my carpet. Yeah. Very Bad Wizards, no context. For those of you who have been listening to our show and have been on Twitter, you probably came across uh, this account. Uh, to this day, we don't know the name of the person who runs it. But from really early on, when we made a joke about our words being taken out of context, this account popped up. And for a good, what, seven, eight years, he's been consistently tweeting uh, some of the shit we say out of context Oftentimes, just to my incredible delight, um, but I think to the entertainment of many of our fans. And uh, it was a re- I messaged him. I was like, so, you know, you were doing a real service. That was a, that was a genuine service for our fans and for our, our, our listeners. And if he's willing to reveal himself, I, we, I would love to send him something. Or I'm assuming it's a him, but maybe it's a, a, a her. 
I'm pretty sure it's a him from the brief conversations I've had with him, but but he could also be very, he could be a platonic sex robot. Yeah. Could very well be that. Or you just know? a regular sex robot. <laughs> well, no, they don't talk to you, see? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I could see them taking stuff out of context. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he said he was retiring. I, you know, like it's sort of a shame that he did that before this opening segment, but... Some people were like, oh, like you should have somebody else take over... I think that's his, and I think that it's sacred. It's sacredly his. Of course, anybody else can start a Twitter account and say whatever they want. But uh, but that will f- memorialize VBW No Context. Um, his number is retired. Exactly. exactly. Hoisted to the rafters <laughs> of very bad wizards, Hall of Fame lore. That's right. <laughs> if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we really, really appreciate that as well. You can go to our verybadwizards.com and there's a tab where you can click on support. Mainly that shows you a couple of things, the Patreon uh, page, a link to that, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. We very, very much appreciate all the support you guys are giving us. We can't thank you enough. And in fact, the way that we are trying to thank you is that during these quarantine moments, uh, trying to put out uh, a few extra things for you guys. So you, Tamler, just published your David Lynch discussion. Blue Velvet. Yeah. Deep dive into Blue Velvet, um, directed by David Lynch with Natalia Washington and Jesse Graham. It's it's a long one. It's a long, night, uh, fun exploration of that great movie. We're, we're thinking of coming back at some point to do Inland Empire, the most inscrutable of David Lynch movies. That is where I grew up, the IE, the Inland Empire. So I might have to join. <laughs> have you seen the movie? I saw it a long time ago and it was inscrutable. Like my brain wasn't even formed well enough, I think, to understand David Lynch in general, let alone that particular movie. I only saw it because it was called Inland Empire. Um, by the way, did you see that uh, meme that went around where somebody posted an image that said, uh, the world makes a lot more sense when I saw this? Directed by David Lynch. Yeah, yeah on his window. <laughs> I'm sure a bunch of people said that to you. If you, uh, for some reason, cannot support us on Patreon for whatever reason, uh, you could also give us a recurring or, or one-time donation on PayPal. That link is also there. We very much appreciate it. Oh, the last thing I wanted to say is I didn't realize how much the Instagram page had grown. We're like at 3,000-something followers. That's, that's dude, we're... we're you run it now. You're an influencer. You're officially an influencer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, thank you for all your support. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Let's get to our main topic. So, this is a movie, British movie, from 1949. Directed by Carol Reed, the director, although sometimes people think it's directed by Orson Welles, but it was not. Uh, written by Graham Greene, starring Joseph Cotton, Alida Valley, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard. Cinematography by Robert Krasker and the music score by Anton Karras. I don't often mention the cin- cinematographer and the m- music director, but holy shit, the the music and the the look of this film is part of what makes it a total masterpiece. The The music is on that instrument, 
the uh, zither, the zither, and all of it. Just every every musical sound you hear is it's just that. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing, and it's hypnotic. Like it just it's one of the things, and, this, and the, the the cinematography is like this too. That you start watching this movie, and you're just drawn into it, and you feel it envelops you in the mood, the exact mood that it should envelop you in. Who would have thought, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but who would have, like, on paper said, you know how this should be scored with a zither? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Carol Reed, I think, made the call, and that's one of the best calls ever made. And the, the cinematographer is using this kind of style that tilts the camera um, a lot at, and I, we should talk about like when, um, but that was something it's not, he wasn't the first to do this. You see this a good amount in Citizen Kane, which I think why people think Orson Welles might've directed the movie, but he really used it to perfection here. I, I read a funny anecdote where his, the director, William Wyler sent him like one of those levels. Yeah. Did you hear this? Totally right. And he yeah. says, Hey, next time you make a picture, just put it on top of the camera. Will you? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> when was the first time you saw it and what did you think then what do you think now i don't remember the first first time i saw it but i do know that it was fairly late in life so i was already into my 30s the first time i saw it and maybe it was my first you know when i first learned that noir movies might be fun is probably one of the first ones that i watched uh because that's exactly what you should watch. <laughs> it is. It's the kind of the ultimate noir, old, yeah. old style noir. Although, um, if that's going to set your expectations, <laughs> then maybe, maybe not. Maybe work your way up uh, to it. Yeah, I mean, there's also there's so many great noir movies. There are and- so many great noirs, but uh, and this this transcends, you know, the genre. And then I'd I'd estimate that in the last few years i've seen this i've probably seen it a total of four or five times uh but the last time i watched it was this morning and god i love it it's great i i also don't remember the first time possibly in high school but it's the kind of movie my mom would have brought me to if it was in a a repertory movie theater but i don't remember that if she did or now I think I do actually, but I've seen it so many times for a long time. If people would ask me what my favorite movie was, which is a weirdly hard question to answer, I would say this. I, I also have a very special memory. I, my first year of graduate school, I did a summer three week workshop in Vienna. Whoa. It was awesome. Yeah. It was like totally funded by Duke. Are the, are the streets actually tilted? They are, yeah. They're like diagonal, like that. Uh, uh, so it's really hard to walk. You're like my your one foot is always like bent horizontally. But the uh, they had a at the time that I was there, maybe still, well, not at this particular point. They had a movie theater that just played The Third Man every single day. Wow! And so I probably went in the theater. Like I probably I think I saw it at least three times just in those three weeks while I was there. It is a compulsively rewatchable movie that you can just I don't know if it's my favorite movie I don't know if I'd say that any more but if you ask me what's the closest thing to a perfect movie I would say this like there's not a like a bad scene there's not a bad performance everything is fits together just perfectly and that's how I felt about it you know when I saw it like a year ago and that's what I feel about it when I saw it today it's just so freaking good one of the things that I noticed as I was watching it this morning, among the reasons to praise it, is 
the the pacing. I don't, I don't know what what the pacing is is perfect. It 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 ramps it up when it needs to. It slows it down when it needs to. You're never bored. You never things don't drag on too much. Yeah, so should I do a brief synopsis and then yeah. we'll dive into it? I mean, we can also talk about what we think the themes of it are. Yeah, and and let's say right now, if you haven't watched it, more more than most, uh, we say this a lot, but more so than most other times that, I, like, I mean it this time. Like, watch this film. Like, don't. Li- <laughs> I mean, I guess you could listen. There's one big twist. It's hard to imagine that the people don't. Yeah, like, not knowing that <laughs> twist at this point, right. but. Uh, I'm sure there was a time, and I'm sure it's pretty cool if if, if you don't know it. It's just been too long. Um, so it's post-World War II Vienna. It, it's just kind of a bombed-out city where it, it's it's not clear who controls it. There are four different zones, the Russian zone, the French zone, the American zone, and the British zone, and everybody's living in, I don't know, this kind of liminal space almost. It's like this time between the war period and the full post-war period where it's it's just not clear what's happening to Vienna, who's in charge. So I think that's such a perfect setting for a movie. Then an American Pulp Fiction writer of Westerns, Holly Martins, arrives at the beginning of the movie to meet with his old friend Harry Lime, who has offered him a job. On the arrival, he learns Harry has just died, hit by a truck in front of his building, and he goes to the funeral. He sees a beautiful woman there, Anna Schmidt, and a friend of Harry's. Soon he learns that Anna was Harry's lover. Major Calloway, who is commanding the investigation into his death and also into his uh, activities in Vienna, uh, Harry Limes, offers a ticket for Holly to return home. But while waiting for a trip, he talks to two friends of Harry that tell him they had been the ones to help his friend before he died. But the porter tells a different story that there was a mysterious third man that helped Harry and Holly Martins becomes intrigued with the inconsistency and investigates further. Calloway reveals that Harry Lyme was the leader of a gang that robbed penicillin from the military hospital to dilute and resell it on the black market. And that caused the death and the insanity of many children. And so then once you find that out, there's the twist. And then there's also what will, how does Holly handle this information? How does he absorb what he's heard about his friend who he had kind of gone there to, to see? And then once he learned that he'd been killed, he was investigating. So should we get into it? Do you want to talk about the big themes first before going through it? What do you think? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed this rewatch, but one of the themes that struck me as just like this, this movie is deeply about, um, it's about not knowing somebody, right? It's about not knowing people, not being able to really know somebody. And the, the emotional core, I think at the heart of this is that these two people, Holly uh-huh, uh, and Anna, uh, Schmidt, who both knew Harry Lyme, Orson Welles' character, um, never thought that he would be capable of doing the things that he's accused of doing, right? And they were both at his funeral. They're both mourning the loss of their friend, and they admit that he had a way about him. He was, you know, he sounds pretty mischievous in the description that Harry gives of him when he was a child. Like, he used to be able to teach us how to um, pretend like we were sick. 
right? Uh, when when we had to go to school, like various little, you know, he was kind of a little little con. Little Tom Sawyer kind of. The Tom Sawyer mischievous kind of guy. And a lot of the the to me the what hits home emotionally is when when the two friends not only do they discover that he lied and is alive, um, but that he's just a bad dude, right? And that everything they believed about him, they were certain like that. And I can imagine that feeling of certainty that you knew somebody, but you don't really like. And they didn't really know him. And and I think that's at least what hits me the most about this, that that you never quite know somebody. Yes, this theme of not knowing somebody in a way that you thought you did. You know, one thing the camera and the music does is convey a sense of disorientation. And I think we see a lot of this movie from his perspective. He is... He as in... Sorry, as Joseph Cotton, um, Holly Martin's perspective. And so... You know, one of the things I love is the choice. When people are speaking German, they don't use the subtitles. Yeah, that's great. So you just feel like there's all this noise and this talk and people are talking and you don't know what they're saying. And it is this sense that he's really in over his head, but because he's an American and he has that sense of optimism and he's kind of a romantic, he has that kind of naive, well, I'm going to solve this problem and and, and save the girl and vindicate my friend who is being accused falsely by this British major. So it contrasts this kind of American perspective that, you know, we can definitely just go into this place that we have no ties, no connections, nothing, and we can just fix the problems there. And that's a very noir element of it too, this idea of somebody who goes in maybe with good intentions, but he, he, he'll end up making it worse because he he has this overconfidence, like he can bend the will of this place uh, or bend it to his will. Totally. That and that theme, I th- I had, I guess, recognized it as a, a feature of Holly's sort of arrogance or optimism and his failures to actually get things done, but. I think it wasn't until this rewatch and reading about it that it dawned on me that, oh, this really is a British movie, right? It's easy for me to forget because the protagonists, uh, Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles are both American and the British people are like in any American movie, they might be the other. But this movie is so clear that this is saying trying to say something about Americans, right? You come in here, you're unrefined. In fact, we, we could talk about that scene where he's been invited to give a literary discussion. Yeah, let's wait on. Let's okay, wait on. Yeah. <laughs> but that that theme that the simple Americans think that they can come in and solve everything. Wait, just hold on. Let me show you how this situation really is like yeah. fucked, right? And it's not a lesson that we necessarily learn, you know, Iraq, right? Oh, they're going to welcome us with flowers and we're just going <laughs> to yeah. figure out all the tribal loyalties and we're going to like just make everything, bring democracy, make everything better. I mean, that is Holly Martin, that kind of attitude. And, and you know, again, a noir hero tends to be like this. They get drawn into something they can't hope to understand. Uh, it's very much an anti-noir in some sense, like... But we'll talk about that a bit more when we finish the... Huh. That's interesting. I wouldn't think that, but... Um, it, yeah, I'll explain what I mean in a bit. So it starts with a great opening narrated by the director, Carol Reed, 
and um, he talks, he just describes the scene and all the rackets that are going on in there. And, and he even says that a lot of amateurs have gone into Vienna where everything is so unstable and tried to um, set up some sort of shop and they end up dead. And then you get Holly Martin getting off the train and he's actually surprised, this is where his head is at at the beginning, that Harry Lyme isn't at the station to meet him. But then he gets to his his flat walking under a ladder, which I loved that touch, like, as he goes into it. And they tell him that he's just been killed, and this is the first time you get this German that you don't know what uh, is being said. And this porter tells him uh, about the accident, and he goes to the funeral and sees that Harry is now being buried. And there are a bunch of other people there, uh, an Englishman who we learn is Major Calloway. Anna is there, who we'll find out was Harry's uh, girlfriend or lover, and a couple of creepy-looking European guys, Central <laughs> European guys, uh, are also there. Hey, was... Um, Holly going to Vienna because Harry had invited him? Yes. He offered him a job. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Which matters. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's not total. I think it was to, we find out like deep into the movie that it was to write for prescriptions, write the copy. Yeah. He was marketing, marketing for his, for his illegal black market penicillin trading. That's um, penicillin money can buy. So Callaway introduces himself to Holly Martins, buys him a drink and, and tells him, he, he, he tells him that Harry was involved in some shady stuff and at one point indicates that he, even though, you know, like it's not murder specifically, it was like a kind of murder. And Harry takes a swing at him, sorry, uh, Holly takes a swing at him and then this other, the sergeant pulls him back, restrains him and, and this sergeant is actually a big fan of Holly Martins' westerns. And that's a very funny dynamic because he's often like restraining him or punching him because he's, uh, you know, he's trying to attack the major, but at the same time, very polite and kind of like <laughs> fanboying about the fact that. Yeah, he'll even mention like, you know, on the on the offbeats, like how much he loved this particular book. It's also funny that, that uh, you know, Holly is a writer of pulp westerns because you get none of that vibe. Uh, about him at all like the, he doesn't see he's not from the west like he doesn't talk like it like it's he's just writing you get the sense just pure like pure pulp uh based on what he's read the oklahoma kid is one of him the lone rider of santa fe yeah i mean i love that the opening it just sets the stage you learn just enough to be kind of intrigued and you get a sense He's diving in, Holly. He, he knows nothing of what's going on. And this British major just tells him this and he immediately assumes the British major is corrupt, that they're trying to frame Harry, who's now dead, which makes it even more contemptible. As he goes out of the hotel, uh, he meets another Englishman named Crabbin. And he, Crabbin hears that Holly is an author, but he doesn't recognize him. And he says, oh, that's great. We need a writer in Vienna to give a talk. And he invites him to stay and give a lecture three days later and offers to pay for his room and board, which he'll need or else he has to go home. Right. He has no money at this point. He has no money. Just the way this misunderstanding is is set up at the beginning of the movie is very is very funny, and the performance of this guy is is really of Crabbin is hilarious. 
by the way, that's the, it's, it's such a nightmare of mine to get pulled up on stage to try to <laughs> deliver a talk that you, <laughs> that you have no preparation to give. It's like a, a literal nightmare of mine. <laughs> We'll get to that, but like I feel like I've been in that situation where I'm talking to a lot of old people, you know, like maybe it was like a book reading, and they look at you so expectantly, and you're just like, ah, shit. <laughs> so then uh, Holly gets uh, a phone call from this Baron Kurtz guy who says he was a friend of Harry's, and they meet at uh, the Mozart Cafe, and Kurtz is carrying one of Holly's books which he says Harry gave to him and a small dog. And this guy, uh, Baron Kurtz, is so creepy. Yeah, he is. Just the way he's kind of squeezing the dog is. uh, And so you get these really cool close-ups as they're talking to, like, you know, sometimes they're tilted. It it always gives you this uneasy disorienting. Uh But that guy is, like, just, like, he's even wearing a black hat, I think. He just screams villain. Yeah. He definitely does. Then uh, Holly wants to figure out what the that woman um, was doing at the funeral and goes to see her. And this is where he goes to this uh, theater. And it's just a funny scene of him there. Again, the performance is all in German and all the people in the audience are chuckling and he just has no idea what's going on. It's great because I, I had the subtitles on, which I've just taken to watching things with subtitles on. And uh, you, it gives me this extra expectation that... Uh, I will be privy to stuff that people watching without the subtitles on won't be. So, like, I'm, like, expecting to understand even more. And then it just says German. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, really? It doesn't even give you this? No, it doesn't give you anything. So I was actually, my daughter is studying German. And uh, I I was like, come, come here. Tell me what they're saying. <laughs> I like not knowing. I think that's a great effect. And I'm glad that even the... Closed captioning. I have some issues with you doing that, but we can. I do too. I do too. Um, But in my defense, it's because the person I live with seems to be way deafer than I am. She needs to have the closed captions on, or else she can never catch what they're saying. This is interesting. He meets Anna, and Anna takes him back to um, Harry Lyme's apartment where they have a meeting with the porter, and the porter is. It's it's very cool scene, right? Like again, there's this language barrier between Holly and the porter, and so like just even finding out any little bit of information is a bit of a struggle. There's also this sense of unease that the porter clearly has, and the wife doesn't want him to to say anything. Whenever they're talking about the accident, you get that massively tilted Dutch angle, and and then just at a, a certain point, and I might be conflating two scenes, and then this boy comes in with a ball the ball comes in and the boy and that sets up some you know what one of the amazing scenes in this movie here is where the porter the information that he does get from the porter it seems to be a, a couple of things one is that unlike the official report three men were carrying his body not two not just Popescu and and kurtz um who that third man is and that he was killed immediately. There wasn't time to say anything. Like he, he, the the person that got hit was would have been incapable of saying anything in the time from which they moved him to the street to it was like a statue. And Anna is very suspicious that this was not an accident. It's in this scene I think that she expresses her suspicion 
she doesn't necessarily think he should explore it more, but she, in fact, she's, you know, shit like this happens in post-war Vienna. Like, I'm, you know, whatever. It was an accident. I don't believe it was murder. I mean, I don't believe it was an accident. It was murder, but what are you going to do? Yeah. She has that kind of fatalistic, it's all shady and there's no defeating it. And yeah, again, this is the contrast with the American, you know, there's the defeated, I'm at the whim of fates right now and there's nothing I can do that she has. And then, you know, with everybody else, they're either like corrupted themselves or they're kind of world weary like the major Calloway is. Yeah. He then meets with the doctor who's even more creepy. He's like the way he's cutting that chicken before we even see his face. We just see him cutting the chicken. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the landladies, when he goes to Anna's house, who's just shouting in German and like in, in this with this big like blanket wrapped around her. Um, and she's just this noise, essentially. She's just this loud, dis- disruptive. Yeah, she distresses me more than anything else. And that it, that's where it really works, where you don't know what the hell she's saying. And you're like, why? Why are you? Why are you mad? Are you mad? Why are you yelling? Yeah. And I and so the guess the Calloway and his and the police are at Anna's house. And they are taking in her papers, which they realize are forgeries. It's revealed that Harry Lyme got her the, her false papers, but she might be in trouble with the Russians who are uh, attempting to repatriate people from Czechoslovakia. And that's where she is from. So here's where like Martins was supposed to go home. He's still there. He's still bumbling around. And Calloway just kind of looks at him. It's like, go home. You don't know what you're getting into. And, I, and he's still belligerent about this. And it's just this slow breaking down of that kind of belligerent optimism over the, over the course of the movie. Holly seems to take the just go home as like some sort of challenge. Like, oh, you're trying to, you're corrupt and hiding the truth from me. And turns out like it was more like an altruistic just go home <laughs> it was very much like the, the i would say the major is the one like good person in the movie but, uh yeah at at vinkel's house and that's a great scene between the two of them so it's eerie. pronounced vinkel vinkel <laughs> you you see that the doctor is kind of given conflicting inconsistent stories too and there's something very suspicious about him also there's the same dog at Vinko's house as the one that Baron Kurtz was holding. I didn't notice that. Really quickly, this is Dr. Vinkel is, when he's pressing him for information, he's saying that it was, that he arrived at the accident after he was already dead and there were only two men there. So it seems like he's sticking to the two, two men story, but then like saying, but, but I don't know what, what was said. Like I was, I got there afterwards. Yeah. And so then there was, this Popescu, this Romanian who Kurtz had said was, had left Vienna, but now all of a sudden he was back. And he gives an account of the death that is exactly the same as Kurtz's, but is um, inconsistent with what the porter said, which was that he was dead immediately and that there was a third man. And here, Holly just gets the porter killed. And you kind of know it's happening. But he just tells Popescu, who's acting so suspicious, that this porter uh, told me that there's a third man. And you just know that as he's describing what the porter told him, that's going to be it for the porter. As they as they say, the one German word that you clearly understand, kaput, when there's... <laughs> when Yeah. And this is another, another instance where Holly is just in way over his head. Like he doesn't even realize that maybe he should be paying attention to what people are saying. And this is, I think, Holly's worst sin in the, in the movie. Um, and he goes back to meet the porter and the porter is 
is is dead at and and then the, this initiates just like this crazy sequence which i remember thinking like as i was watching it and i was watching it with my daughter it's like this movie is so good right now and like orson welles hasn't even been in it yet there's a big crowd around the porter's apartment building which is just like also this awesome structure, you know, like the, the hallways. Yeah, yeah. The, we didn't say enough about how cool the Vienna buildings are in the setting and location. So this big, dark, gloomy building and all of a sudden there's this kind of mob of people around it and this little boy. And like maybe an ambulance too. Yeah, and an ambulance and you see him coming out, being uh, wheeled out. And this kid who has these cheeks, you know, he has this little like round orb cheeks and is all of a sudden sees him and he has his little hat and, and he starts shouting something again in German. We don't know exactly what. Uh, so then you get the sense from the crowd noise that they think and, and what Anna says that they think he killed the porter. And it takes Holly a long time to put two and two together. And I was wondering why Anna wasn't listening to the yelling of the crowd and like giving him more of a warning um, because He's like walking around like, oh, what's going on? Like, is there more information? Can I get more information? And everyone is like essentially like slowly their eyes all start turning to him. Because this little kid is like grabbing his leg and like... We're going to run, dude. And finally, yeah, it's almost weirdly edited that part because it does seem like it takes both of them too long to realize what's happening. But then he... But this whole thing is a little dreamy. He starts running... And then the mob starts chasing them, but the little kid is always in front. And so, like, throughout the whole chase, as they're going through the streets, the kid is in front, the mob is in the back. And then even as they're going downstairs, and then you see following the kid, who's still ahead of them, <laughs> the, the mob. That, and it's such a cool, just eerie scene with this little five-year-old with the angel face and a mob behind him. <laughs> So does it go straight from here into he gets picked up by a car? Yeah, yeah. Like a car pulls up and like just they're like, get in, get in. And like and the car just speeds away. And you see this like essentially a car at high speed through the streets of Vienna. Like people are opening their windows to see like what's going on with this car. And you're thinking to, to yourself like, wait, who is saving his skin here? Like is this – is there another player in this conspiracy? Yeah, or are is this just – Papescu and and they're gonna take him and they're gonna kill him like they kill the porter and he's driving really fast and Holly and Holly's yelling at him like what are you doing where are you taking me and then the guy just pulls up opens the car door sends him and it's the lecture which is just so funny it's so good because like telling the viewer not all of life turns into a, an incredible film like cat and mouse game no you have to give a lecture dude <laughs> so all of a sudden he's just there and like and this is very like nightmarish. That's not it's every time I see it I oh I want to die. He has to give a speech on what is it? Oh, the crisis of faith in the modern novel. It's this is very well <laughs> edited I think. You just get a sense that it's going really badly. This is like a grad student giving a talk at the APA or something where people are just not into it you know they don't care about offending the poor kid and so they're just trickling out you know and uh and it just it gets worse and worse because they ask him 
you know, w- literary theory questions. Yeah, but. what do you think about James Joyce? Or what, are you, what, what about the stream of consciousness? And he's like, when they ask him who has inspired you, and he gives the name of some... Zane Grey. Yeah, d- like dime store pulp novelist. Well, great Western writer, but yeah. The, the guy, yeah, I didn't recognize the... Uh, the guy's like, oh, no, good joke, good joke. No, 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 but really, like he's trying to save face in the crowd. And the guy, Holly, is just like, what? Like you ask, like that is who inspired me, like, no, this is where you get another sort of nice contrast of the kind of pretentious European and the, the American who at least he's written a ton of books and people enjoy them. Here, the, I think the American comes off better in one of the few places, right, where he, he doesn't go in for all this bullshit like he actually does things that entertains people. And I feel like that, that if you were the sophisticated audience that might have been watching this back then in Europe, you would have sided with the Europeans asking about James Joyce. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but just the way they are, they just, they're almost parodies of a kind of European academic, you know. They are very much uh, what, some, what some crowds are to this day in some, some little corners of the humanities. Um. <laughs> yeah. Also at this talk, at the very end, when everybody is pretty much left, although there are a few stragglers, Popescu shows up and they have this very coded conversation uh, if, if he's working on a new book and Holly Martin's with the kind of bravado says, yeah. It's- right. It's a, it's a murder story and it's inspired by facts. And Popescu says, maybe you should stick to fiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he says, uh, no, sorry. This time it's going to be all fact. And how does he get out of this? I, do, I don't remember how. Feel like oh, he I think he goes to Callaway, Callaway, right? Yeah, he goes to Callaway. He goes to Callaway, yeah. And here's where Callaway convinces him what Harry has done. The fact that the, the, this watered-down penicillin makes, leads to painful deaths and also, like, little children to go crazy, uh, the little children with meningitis, um, or the lucky ones die. You could see where Callaway was trying to, when he was saying just leave, like he was trying to spare his friend the memory of, of his friend, right? He, did, he, he was trying to get out of this in as dignified way as possible where it's like, look, why ruin the memory for the friend? Just, just leave. Let us take care of this. But no, you had to stick around. So fine, you're sticking around. It's like, you know, the sort of the tropish almost like, here is a stack of files. Boom. Here you go. This is what we know about him. Are you happy? And he, and he gets like the second in a series of plane tickets that he will never catch. Uh, the, 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 I think that's a running joke in the movie. He always gets a plane ticket to leave and he never takes the ticket. He always like till the very end of the movie, he never leaves. He's still in Vienna as we speak. So now he gets drunk I guess the Popescu's people are not a problem anymore. He buys flowers. He brings them to Anna. He He's very drunk right now. Kind of reveals that he loves Anna and Anna reveals to him that she only has eyes for Harry, even dead Harry. She says it too in such a cruel way. She's like, honestly, if someone had asked me like whether you were fair or dark or if you had a mustache or not, I couldn't have answered. Like, she's like, I have paid so little attention to you that my answer to you is, of course not. Of course not. Like, I don't care about you. <laughs> and he, and, you know, that's another thing. He keeps pining for her and it's just never going to happen. Um, even the cat 
as he tries to like then talk to the cat for some affection again he's drunk the cat just <laughs> wants nothing to do with him and goes out the window and anna says um the only person that cat ever really liked was harry and then there's these this is again this is an all-time movie and we still haven't gotten to this but now we're getting to it where you see the cat just go on this beautiful like again just empty shadowy streets of vienna kind of like echoey streets that's what i wanted to say actually one of the before i forget that that description those dark we often talk about the lights and the shadows and the the angles in this film but as i was watching it today the sound is amazing the echoiness is giving you this sense of emptiness um that that is really viscerally i think it's important to get to setting the stage yes absolutely exactly like it is it's the it's the emptiness that the echo is but you know like you get it now if you walk around the streets a little bit it's a similar kind of feeling where just more people should be here than are here right now like there's something wrong something is off Hey, did you read, by the way, that they wet the, the cobble so that the light would reflect off of it? Uh, no, but that's awesome. Isn't that cool? Uh, it totally, yeah. The, um, it is a perfectly, the atmosphere of this movie is so perfectly tuned to the themes of it. So then the cat goes and you just follow the cat and the cat goes to uh, a, a doorway that's in total shadow and you just see the cat just go up to what is clearly a leg and then, you know, be really excited and happy. And so, huh, at this point, that's interesting. And then he leaves Anna's and he goes down and he sees the shadowy figure in the doorway, but he can't see who it is. Yeah. It's absolutely dark except for the cat and the leg. Except for the cat and the leg. And he, he starts shouting drunkenly like, uh, you're too scared? Come out, come out and see me. And then all of a sudden, a woman in a apartment gets up and starts screaming, like, what's all this noise? And as she turns on the yeah, it's light... It's a totally German woman complaining about noise. <laughs> exactly. The, the light goes on, and it's uh, Orson Welles as Harry Lyme. And just it just stays on him. He doesn't say anything, but he just gives this look. That five whatever three to five seconds of a look that orson wells gives i'm really interested in whether they did multiple takes or what but it is this perfect transition from okay i'm caught like because this light unexpectedly just shone right on me and it's lit as we've said before lit beautifully clear as day it's orson wells he has a face that's i'm caught then he has this little smirk that starts emerging on his face and then a smile because uh, he sees his friend or because he wants to show his friend a smile. And that transition, those, those expressions are, I don't know, like that performance right there is one of the best five-second performances in cinema. And, and you get the sense that really Orson Welles is one of the few people in the world ever who, who could have done that. Um, that kind of mischievous. Mischievous is perfect. But he, he goes from mysterious to mischievous to welcoming of a friend. Uh, seductive kind of also and he then then the light goes off and, and he starts running and holly chases him and he's in this he chases him into this big plaza with just this i don't know like um you know like a newsstand kind of 
in the middle of it, we think, and then he disappears. So he brings back Calloway and says, I saw Harry. Calloway doesn't believe him, but then they see that this little structure leads down to the Vienna sewers and they go and they see that that actually must be where where he was and then they go and dig up but they're just that whole thing of that empty square again it's totally empty but there's this thing in the middle and that leads to this vast underground uh, sewer system that they now realize he has uh, escaped in so yeah then they excavate the grave and they see that the body is not Harry's but this guy Joseph Harbin who had disappeared and who was supposed to meet with Harry Right, he was the medical orderly who had been uh, stealing uh, the penicillin from the military supplies to get on the black market. So then uh, the police come, they take Anna, and then Calloway takes and reveals to her that Harry is alive. And this is a great filmmaking choice that I'm not sure I noticed until this round. But as Calloway is talking to her, kind of accusing her of, playing a role in Harry's disappearance they just keep the camera on her and and she does this this actress who we haven't really talked about Alita Valley you just like the the camera never leaves her face as Callaway both is, is accusing her of helping Harry when did the last time you see Harry tell me everything you know or I'll turn you over to the Russians and meanwhile her face is not registering anything except holy shit Harry is still alive and and just that look of sad wonder in her face and like, oh, oh my God, he's still alive is all she's getting out of. It, it captures really well without her saying much of anything. Yeah, you would believe she wasn't in on it. Yeah, A, she wasn't in on it, but B, how she's still so smitten with Harry and can't even process anything except the information that he's still alive. So the next day he goes to Baron Kurtz's apartment in the Russian sector and Dr. Vinkel comes out. That's why they had the same dog. And um, Holly says he wants that Harry to come meet him at the fairgrounds. And then you have, you know, maybe the most famous scene ever filmed. Hall, uh, Harry Lyme, Orson Welles, just this long shot of him coming, striding to go meet Holly by the Ferris wheel and then them getting into the Ferris wheel and going up and their, uh, their, their conversation up there, which is so dramatically charged, so thematically rich and interesting and so brilliant. And it just gets started with how he's walking to meet Holly. Like, and this, this is uh, where... In the movie, I think Holly wants to, he needs to hear it from Lime himself. Like he's, he's like, fine, you know, he was convinced by Callaway, but, but this is his friend. He needs to hear it from him. And Lime is very nonchalant about it. He doesn't deny what he's been doing, um, what he, what his approach is to just say like, wh- like, what's the big deal? Really? Like, what's the big deal? And the use of the Ferris wheel to be, you know, at the height of the of the ride when they're up there looking down at people. Um, he says, I don't have the quote. In, I don't know if you have the quote in, in front of you. Um, he says, look at those 
little dots. Would you would it would you be so sad if a few of those dots disappeared? And now, what if you could get twenty thousand pounds for each dot? Wouldn't you start uh, seeing how many dots you could spare? <laughs> exactly. It's so cold blooded. Exactly. And and in the same scene, there is an attempt at perhaps threatening Holly. I think he's definitely going to kill him. Uh, you, you think he was going to kill him? Yeah. He says, you're the only evidence against me right now. So Holly says, uh, you want to get rid of me? How are you going to do that? And he says, well, you don't carry a gun. I, and he has a gun in his jacket. Uh, no one's going to check for a bullet wound um, after a fall from this distance. And then Holly tells him, so I think he's just about to kill him at that point. Holly tells him, they dug up your body. And that changes his mind. He realized there's no real upside anymore in killing Holly because they already know that he's alive. And so that's, that's over right now. Game over. He's going to have to go on, the, on a run. Yeah, like, and so this is, then he, he switches to, oh, you know, you know, this is like some sort of showdown that's so silly. Like, I, he says he wants to cut him in uh, to his racket. They've always, you know, done everything together. Um, and meet me any, pl- any place, any time if you want to do this. As long as it's just you. <laughs> yeah, and then he gives the, the, the line, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. <laughs> oh man that's so great just ruthless you come on you you leave this scene with this sense of like oh man this guy might have been charming they might have been friends with him but he is a ruthless dude but still charming so full of charm and charisma um and apparently orson wells uh wrote that that particular line uh they they just needed to kill some time <laughs> And so so he wrote that line, which, what is he saying there? Is he saying that I am justified in create, being an agent of chaos and destruction because eventually good things will happen? Like, are we to believe that he thinks that he's doing a good thing or that he is just, because on the one hand, he could be indifferent to humankind, right? He'd just be like, whatever, as long as I make money. Here it seems as if he's saying like, yeah, but when humans get too comfortable, all they do is build cuckoo clocks. Like, let me just fuck with shit uh, in, 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 for the sake of making civilization a better thing. I think he's saying that, like, it's dead. It's deadening. It's stultifying to be somebody who observes the rules and keeps the peace. Like, that produces nothing. Like, because of people like me, we have greatness. <laughs> and it's very self uh self-aggrandizing like he's killing kids yeah he's killing kids he's is grandiosity and he thinks of himself as an agent of chaos that that's moving the world forward yeah it's like a moving stage the stage of history or something forward but again he pulls it off like you're almost drawn in by it you know even though it like makes no sense it's obviously just rationalizing murderous villainy like evil but you know, he has that devil-like quality of making it sound good. This is where, after reiterating the job offer and leaving, Callaway comes and asks Martins 
uh, Holly again, like, let me help, like help us capture him. And this time after having this encounter with Lyme and seeing that he's not the person that he thought he was for sure, for sure. He says that he agrees, but he, in exchange for his helping, he wants Anna, who he's fallen in love with, uh, to have safe conduct out of Vienna in exchange for his help. Um, Anna doesn't give a fuck about his help. She does. She's like, I don't need your help. And she refuses. Well, she gets on, she's on the train. She doesn't know why she's on the train, like thinks it's just like good luck. But then once she sees Holly, she gets off the train, puts two and two together that... Holly's going to set up Harry and she says, like, how can you do that? He's your friend. And she tears up her papers and her tickets and she says, I won't be the price for this. Like, I refuse. So it's a kind of integrity um, out of, you know, love for Harry. But at this point, it's hard to see how. And I can see her resisting this constant, constant attempt by Holly to be her, her, you know, knight in white armor. And like she's not playing this game. He's playing this game in his head. Yeah, his romance. His romance, exactly. And that this is where he goes to Callaway and says, "Look, he's a terrible guy. I hope you get him. Do what you want, but I can't be the agent. I can't bring that about myself." He no longer has the Anna motivation. So exactly. And so here he's about to get on his plane. Callaway says, I'll take you to the airport. And, oh, wait, let's just make a little stop here. <laughs> and then you have a scene that um, I would think Paul Br- Bloom might have a problem with. I was, <laughs> I was thinking the exact fucking thing. You have this, this appeal to empathy for individual victims, right? He took him to a hospital and he's showing him children dying of meningitis that had been caused because they were treated by Harry Lyme's diluted penicillin. So they're like, we don't see them, but you see their reaction. You see Holly's reaction to seeing them. Clearly some are dying and some are losing their mind. And that that appeal to empathy disproves Paul Bloom's entire book. <laughs> well, or he would use it as evidence. Like, you knew that kids were dying of meningitis before this, but you had to see it. <laughs> like, but yes, he did have to see it and he did have to have his empathy triggered here. And then he's just like, he doesn't want anything in return. Now it's just, I will set up here. He doesn't feel great about it, but like he think he clearly thinks it's the right thing to do now that he's seen up close um, the victims. And there's an interesting scene in the Ferris wheel where he says to Harry, have you seen any of your victims? And he hadn't yet. And Harry like brushes it off. He's like, they're numbers, they're statistics, these people. And now he knows for the first time, oh no, they're not statistics. And this is what Harry has done to them. So he agrees to set him up at this cafe. And now you have, you know, again, another like historically famous uh, scene um, starts out in the cafe and then Anna sees him there. Uh, the cops are all waiting. Every officer from various different countries are waiting to capture Harry. And as he's going to meet him in the cafe, Anna warns him and he runs down into the sewers and then there's this sewer chase, which is um, pretty remarkable, even how famous and hyped up it is. It is a pretty remarkable scene. The editing. It's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, and and it is again with the pacing like it's built perfectly. I, like a lot of times, I feel t- 
tired by the time I get to the like big action sequences in movies where I'm just like, ah, okay, with the fucking chasing and the explosion. Not here. Like here they've like spread out the tension enough that like we know this has to happen. And I was still, I still am invested in in what's going on. And fucking Orson Welles is so charming. I still am kind of wanting him to like make it. I, I don't think I'm wanting him to make it, but I think the way this is shot, the whole sequence in the sewers, he is like a trapped animal there. And there is a kind of feeling of, and they keep like showing various different police officers, soldiers, so many people are coming down into all the different entrances into the sewer, all to chase this one guy. And there's this almost kind of unfairness, like uh, uh, Eliza said the same thing. She said, I feel bad for him. You, you, because he's so he's like this trapped animal that's just scrambling around trying to find safety somewhere and there are people coming from all the different corners and he doesn't know where any of them are they don't know where he is and it's this chase like a fox hunting or something like kind of just uh, uh, there's something uh, intrinsically ugly yeah i was thinking fox hunting exactly exactly right um and and the confusion that was uh, before so strong from the lack of knowledge of, of German for non-German speakers is now a confusion that is built around the darkness and the twisting tunnels where we're not quite sure what's going on. It's distressing. And he, like, not only are, are you right about him being sort of like a trapped animal, but they make him look for the first time very vulnerable and afraid. Like his hair is a mess he knows now that he's running for his life and there's no, he doesn't do it with very much dignity, at least in appearance, right? That's right. All this confidence and charisma is now amounts to nothing. It's just how fast can he run? And every time he tries to go up like an entrance to escape, there's somebody there until the, the very end. But by then it's too late. So yeah, he kills, unfortunately, the the fan of Holly Martin's. Now his book sales are going to go down. <laughs> and then the major just kind of stands and pauses over the sergeant and, mean, and doesn't notice that, that Holly has taken the gun from the sergeant's dead hands and gone up to, to find Harry outside one of the entrances. Harry, meanwhile, has been shot. And he's just dragging himself up to, the, to escape from the sewers. But he doesn't really have it in him. And then he sees Holly there and he gives him this look like, finish me off. Right. He, you see him attempt to lift the grate, but he's so injured that he can't. And, and interestingly, it looks like that grate might be free. It, like it looks like he might make it out. but The only one. The only one that didn't have somebody there waiting for him. And he can't. You can hear the chase getting closer Right. And it is just this two friends. It's Holly looking at Lime. And yeah. And there he gives that look that you were describing. That look of you can do it. Please finish me off. It's like a mercy. It's a mercy killing. Exactly. Like do do it. You're, you're still my friend. But as as my friend, please do this thing for me. I like this conclusion to this chasing because I could see a movie where the good guy, Holly, is like, I'm going to let the law take care of this, you know. And like, you know, he deserves more than just a quick death. Um, he deserves to be tried and found guilty. But that's that's not 
right? We know from the get-go that he was such a friend to Harry Lyme that he was willing to sort of be willfully ignorant and ignore some of the evidence because he was actually loyal. He was, he was loyal. And this, this last gesture is one of, I think, friendship. It's clearly the last gesture of friendship between the two people. Yeah, I mean, I think he had set him up. The whole reason they're being, he's being chased is because Holly ratted him out, or at least set him up. But at this moment, they, he will do this one thing for him. He had to bring it to a stop. He wasn't as loyal as Anna, who was loyal to the very end, refused to play any role in stopping Harry, despite what he'd done. But he gives him this one moment of grace by, by shooting him. And then that's it. And I think Callaway's fine with him being dead. Like, that's all he ever wanted, Calloway, was for Harry Lyme to be dead. Yeah, this isn't like, you know, this is already a fairly lawless, four-zoned Vienna where, like, <laughs> they just want to get some shit done. Yeah, you don't want to send this through the justice system. So that's the... And then the scene, you know, the movie pretty much starts with a funeral, Harry Lyme's funeral, and also ends with Harry Lyme's funeral. This time it really is Harry Lyme's funeral. And then this ending is just... One of the great movie ending. I mean, I know I keep saying that, but this is like one of maybe my favorite movie ending. I think we talked about it in some other episode that we did. I don't remember what, but I think maybe moral dilemmas. Maybe yeah, the moral dilemma. I, I think I, I think I had it on for that. Like, do you turn your friend in um, or not when you find out what he's done? And he made the decision to do it. Anna, not happy with that. Anna was a ride or die bitch, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and she just like there's it just starts with this shot of her like in the distance walking down this road, that same road leading away from the cemetery, and she just walks right past him. But he was driving to get his flight and Callaway was like <laughs> once again. <laughs> right. So right. So he's like, okay, I'm finally getting out, everything is resolved. And they drive past uh Anna walking. And he says, no, no, hold on. Stop, stop the car. He's like, ah, fuck it, fine. Gets out of the car and uh, in a smooth guy maneuver, he doesn't go up to her. He leans on whatever a car uh, on that's that very beautiful path that's, that's covered in trees. And he waits. I timed this shit. It's a full minute of walking. Wow. A minute on screen. Of just a person walking. Of just a person walking. From the time he leans on that thing to the time that she actually gets to where he is and he's smoking a cigarette and waiting like a cool cat thinking that he's going to like, you know. Oh, see, I don't think that he, that's interesting. I didn't interpret it that way. I think he knows it's doomed and he's just got to do it anyway. Like he's just got to try. Either way, it is fucking poignant and like, it would be one thing. So I, I may be with you, but I think that he would at least expect her to say, get the fuck out of my face. Like, I'm not going to be with you. No, what she does is much, much, much worse. <laughs> Colder. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's just like, I don't acknowledge your existence. Like it's a callback to that. Like if you, if somebody had asked me if you had a mustache or no, or whether you were light haired or dark haired, I wouldn't know. Didn't know. Haven't this whole time. Haven't had any feelings for you. Been fairly indifferent to you. It's all about uh, Harry Lime. So I'm just going to walk right by you. You're not worth me saying, get out of my face. I hate you. You're not, he's not worth that. It's, he's beneath whatever that would yeah. be. Yeah. 
And that's, and that's a wrap, man. And the music, you know, we haven't mentioned the music enough, but because it's so perfect with all the action that's going on in the conversation, sometimes almost comically, like it does a little dramatic, you know, and then here though, you just have that famous, like, which and just the whole time. And then she just walks right by and they hold on him a little longer as he processes the fact that he was just that is patient that's a, the a patience that the director has that pays off so well uh, emotionally there's some story about that somebody told the cinematographer to just leave it on the whole time uh, but i don't remember what it was but it's so perfect i do know that they were supposed that the writer was fighting for happy ending oh really graham green was Graham Greene had written the novella like as a prep for the screenplay and he had written it as as a happy ending. Carol um, Reed did not like that. And Graham Greene years later said, yeah, that was the best fucking decision they, they could have made. Like that, the rest is history, right? I was wrong. That's also, you know, Chinatown, which also has a famously bleak ending the uh, Robert Town also had a more optimistic um, version of the ending that Roman Polanski said no like you got to end these movies right you got to end them right it would be so false with an optimistic ending here like in in the original screenplay it was like and then she takes him by the arm and they walk away oh god oh can you imagine how terrible that would have been (laughs) <laughs> ah, we wouldn't just it's not even contempt like you would have to go up a level to even be at contempt it's just like you're not there yeah i don't acknowledge you that you exist as part of this reality oh my god so why so why do you think this is an anti-noir maybe we can wrap up on this note only in the sense that most noir films of that era have a strong reluctant male protagonist who ends up getting drawn into something and uh, solving the mystery. And the woman almost always falls for the man and they have a romantic relationship. Here you have a guy who is trying to insert himself and in his attempts is actually not getting anything done. And the woman never cared about him. She didn't even flirt with him. She didn't even femme fatale him. Like there was no attempt on her part to seduce him. There was no, you know, there's no romance on screen here. Yeah, right. That's true. So there, I think in over your head protagonist is common, but maybe I'm thinking more of like neo-noirs like Chinatown or something where it is this, I go into it with a certain intention, maybe to save the girl and... I, I end up making things worse for everybody, not better. Although he doesn't exactly make things worse. No, it's in fact, he, his influence is fairly inert in this. You get the sense that if he had just gone out, left Vienna, they might have been able to wrap this up. Yes, right. And I think that's the thing. But he gets the porter killed. He gets Anna probably deported or sent back to Russia in the end. And so he really did bumble it. He's a bumbling... But with that American cockiness that, yeah, I mean, I guess I associate with noir, the kind of hero who thinks he can, you know, figure out everything and that they know the angles. And then 
the kind of conspiratorial elements that are actually running the show is something that the detective who seems like they're sophisticated, who thinks himself sophisticated and like they know all the angles. No, they didn't. They, this is something that they never even conceived of was going on. Yeah. I guess, I guess the noir protagonists um, that, that come to my mind are, they're bumbling and they often like very common theme is that they get their ass kicked, but almost willingly just sort of as a way to like get some information. They'll like take punches. Um, I never got the sense that Holly uncovered anything. He's just being sort of selectively told when it's convenient, right? He's not really uncovered. He's not done any detective work. I say all that to say only that like this is maybe not the quintessential noir, but the height of noir. Like this is, as you were saying. Like this is film noir. It's film noir. It is, you know, it's just structured a little bit different than, differently than maybe the, the structures that had emerged with the femme fatale and, the, and, I don't know, alcoholic detective. Who, who at least, you know, does in, investigate and uncover something, even if they get drawn into a world that's too big for them to be able to wrestle with. Yeah, that's right. And also just the cynicism of it. Like, yeah, I love that. Is very noir. Like just, you know, Harry Lyme's speech is a, is something you would get from a noir villain. And and also Calloway and all the people and the, and the, and the creepy side figures, Harry's friends, Baron Kurtz, the Dr. Vinko, like these, like everybody is seedy. Yeah, and weird. And, and there's these, just these, conspiracies that are going on that they, our hero has no idea like what he's up against right and the the forces that are at work there you know the 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 rubble that vienna was in and the chaotic temporary leadership where nobody's clear who has jurisdiction over what um it's a it's a dark post-war film it's like a you know, what the fuck are we doing as humans in this in this situation? Like, who knows? Right, and there's just been the World War Two, and which you know was just about 15 years after World War One. Like, we're just all we're good at is is being cruel to each other and killing each other and like firebombing cities and right. So why not Harry Lyme? Why not make a few bucks off of this fucking misery of humanity? Right, exactly. This game, this sick game that somebody has concocted. It's just as a real, this is true greatness, this movie. It's just fully successful in what it sets out to do. Yeah, I, it's, it's always hard to ask, answer the question, what's your favorite movie, you know? On, literally some days I might say Back to the Future because that's the mood I'm in. But this film is, I could easily on nine days out of ten say that this is the best film I've ever seen. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, there's one thing that I that before we wrap up that that I read somebody mentioned in some article I read that I then caught a lot of in the movie, which is the constant m- misuse of names. People are constantly calling people the wrong thing, um, which sort of goes to the identity. Even their identities are uncertain or unstable at this point. Yeah, that's right. That's good. He calls. Yeah, she calls him. Harriet, and he calls Callaway Callahan. Callahan, Winkle, not Winkle. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a brilliantly Graham Greene. He's a great novelist too. Uh, there's like 
two of his novels that I absolutely, well, three that I absolutely love. And Which ones? The Power and the Glory, Heart of the Matter um, are my two favorites. But there's uh, The End of the Affair is really good. They're often very Catholic. This one doesn't have, it has questions of guilt, I guess, but. Um, yeah, I, I kept reading that this was like, yeah, Graham Greene was very Catholic, but I, I didn't see, I think this is, this transcends so much. He also has this series of books that he called entertainments, which are good, but they're more pulpy. So I think he had this side of him too. They, you, they're like spy thrillers that he would write. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you see the movie if you haven't. Let us know what you think. If you haven't seen the movie, just email me. I'll like, I'll rent it for you. It's that good. Not, not really, but you know. <laughs> 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 I'll bootleg it for you. <laughs> but it is that good. It is that good. All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.